0: We're uh, in the middle of, or actually part two, not quite the middle, starting a series, Atheists Are Made, Not Born, The Biblical Psychology of Modern Atheism, and tonight the topic is the the cognitive, so that's the, the knowing process, the thinking process, the cognitive corruption caused by sin. The cognitive corruption caused by sin. It was uh, January, January 2009, when buses were uh, marshaled out all over England, London in particular. Cabs and buses began to roll out with these large signs on the sides that read this. Quote, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. There's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. The British Humanist Association and Richard Dawkins and other supporters pulled together the 140,000 pounds... So that's like, what, $5 million? The money that was necessary to cover all the expenses of this enormous ad campaign. Quote, there probably is no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. So, so when you think about it, those signs, they, they make a link An intentional link between denying God's existence and enjoying the rest of your life. So so that means acknowledging God, recognizing God, admitting God somehow um, diminishes joy in the rest of your life. So, God brings worry. Denying God brings relief from worry. There probably is no God. Now stop worrying. See? That's what you get when you believe in God. There probably is no God. Now stop worrying. That's the fruit of belief in God. And enjoy your life. So enjoyment, that's the fruit of... ...denying God's existence. God equals worry. Atheism equals relaxation, non-worry, enjoyment. Now the posters, of course, leave us to connect the dots like that. But I can only imagine... ...the worry from the theist side... It comes from some sort of consequence of God's existence. I mean, if there is a God, then he watches over us. There could be wrath, there could be judgment when we don't live properly. So that's, I think, what is in the humanist society and Dawkins' mind with those posters, there probably is no God so stop worrying and enjoy your life. If there is a God, well then there might be consequences to our actions there might be moral judgment there might be absolutes it will cramp your style and the fun of atheism is the consequence of doing whatever you want without God looking over your shoulder going "Mm -mm -mm -mm." none of that I guess there's a kind of twisted logic to that... ...once you get rid of God. Now, the underlying message... ...I want to unfold from those posters. I admit that we made the deduction. There probably is no God... ...so stop worrying and enjoy your life. And we kind of traced that out, okay? So evidently, believing in God brings worry the worry probably would be that there are moral consequences, maybe eternal damnation, maybe judgment, heaven, hell, who knows? Once you put God into the picture, there's stuff to worry about. But we sort of implied all of that. But but what those posters imply is flat out admitted and stated and said... ...in the words of very prominent atheists. Consider consider these words from a man... ...considered by scholars... ...arguably as one of the great um, granddaddies... ...of modern atheism. Aldous Huxley. He's one of the most famous atheists of all time. And he wrote this in his book... ...Ends and Means. This is a direct quote. For myself... As, no doubt, for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. Remember that part. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Most ignorance is vincible ignorance. When we say something is invincible, we mean it can't be overtaken. It's it's, uh, mighty. It's powerful. And when we say something is vincible, we mean it can readily be overcome. Most ignorance, he's talking now ignorance of God. Most ignorance is vincible ignorance, easily overcome. We don't know because we don't want to know. It is our will that decides how and upon what subjects we shall use our intelligence. That's a very important sentence. Those who detect no meaning in the world generally do so because for one reason or another it suits their books that the world should be meaningless. Those are very honest words from one of the prominent atheists of all time. But they aren't unique. They aren't unique to Aldous Huxley. Similar words, listen to these from Another prominent atheist, educator, author, Mortimer Adler... ...who wrote a wonderful, wonderful book. You should buy it, called How to Read a Book. It's a, it's a, it's a fabulous book. Mortimer Adler, who in speaking of his rejection of religious, religious, yeah, religious commitment... ...said that he did so because it would, quote... ...require a radical change in my way of life. A basic alteration in the day-to-day choices as well as in the ultimate objectives to be sought or hoped for. The simple truth of the matter is that I did not wish to live up to being a genuinely religious person. Fortunately, unlike Huxley, Mortimer Adler found he couldn't live with his own cognitive hypocrisy and converted to Christ at the age of 81. like Anthony Flew, one of the most famous atheists of all time... who, before his death, wrote the book, There Is a God. But here's the interesting point. From all those words, the posters in London... Aldous Huxley, Mortimer Adler... writing from an atheist perspective in his younger years... both those famous bus signs... and those words from those two prominent atheists... Those words are their own explanation for their atheism. In other words, this isn't that some Christian came along, some pastor, someone came along and said, here's why they're saying what they're saying. It's not that. This is, this is them telling us why they're believing what they're believing, why they're saying what they're saying, why they're writing what they're writing. Their own words. They hold... Their convictions, according to their own testimony, because theism, belief in God, it would cramp their style. This is the problem we all have with God, isn't it? He insists, terrible PR, he insists on telling us what to do. And according to their own words, the style that would cramp is their moral style. Huxley's words are just unmistakably clear. Quote, we objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Most ignorance is vincible ignorance. We did not know because we did not want to know. Know what? What's he talking about? Well, clearly, Huxley means we, we don't know God. There's no other possible context for those words. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see it. And they reveal the heart... ...of the biblical psychology of modern atheism. The atheist's ignorance of God... ...isn't, first of all, rooted in the mind. It may well reach the mind... ...as a fabricated... ...conviction, intensely held and argued... ...but the atheist's ignorance of God isn't rooted in the mind. It starts in the will. He or she would rather not acknowledge God. I don't mean to wear you out with this... ...but it is the heart of the study tonight. Look again at the words we looked at last Sunday... ...from another very prominent scholarly atheist philosopher, Thomas Nagel, in his book, The Last Word. Here's another atheist, a prominent one, and he says this, quote, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most brilliant, sorry, intelligent... ...and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right about my belief... It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Like what? What does he mean? I don't want the universe to be like that. What is he afraid of? Or to put it in the words of... Those bus signs in London. What about God's existence is he worried about? There probably is no God. So stop worrying. What is he worried about? I don't want the universe to be like that. And the answer for Nagel is the same as it is for Huxley. And the same as it is for Adler. He doesn't want to be inhabiting a universe with moral governance. He doesn't want to live With divine restriction. And command. And responsibility. And answerability. So that's a pretty long preamble. The the single pattern. Running like the line. Down the center of the highway of atheism. Is this. That in spite of the impression. Many have of the intellectual honesty, forthrightness, and courage of modern atheism, at its roots, it resides more in the will opposed to God than the mind being unable to locate him. It resides more in a will opposed to God than a mind unable to find him. It may well indeed reach the mind. I'm not denying that. It may eventually reach the mind. I'm sure atheists honestly believe what they believe. But it doesn't start there. The atheist's ignorance of God is rooted in the atheist's will. Here are... These three points I want to put quickly together now. The, the points are shorter than the intro. One. The Bible teaches there is a direct connection between moral ambition and cognitive function. I mean, that's just a fancy way of saying it's, it's our desires, not just our thoughts, that shape our beliefs. Okay? Okay? So there's a direct connection between moral ambition... ...my desire to run my life on my terms... ...that is connected to the way my mind functions... ...in a bias against God. So so sin affects ideas. Please understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. There's no questioning the intellectual brilliance... ...of many atheists. Many are highly and seriously educated... ...just as many theists are. So education, IQ, that's not under debate here. When I say the Bible teaches a connection between moral ambition and cognitive function... ...I mean sin affects not the intelligence... ...but the way in which intelligence is directed... The Bible says sin causes even great intelligence to be biased. And we Christians actually shouldn't find that a hard concept to accept. Because we all know what it's like to have our own minds... our own wills and our own minds going in opposite directions... with with renewed minds, nonetheless. We know what it's like to have our mind know something. Here's what God requires of us. Here's what God would like us to do. And at the same time, to have our will. Maybe you've never done this, but I'll bet you have. Your mind understands something about what God would have you do... how he would have you live. And your own will take your mind and turn it to justify some course of action that you know isn't pleasing in his sight. Has anybody else ever done that in this room? Yeah. We could sing, just as I am, have us all close our eyes, and I could get way more hands than that that would say, yes, yes. So we we know what that's like. We know what that's like which Christian with a renewed mind... still doesn't find in his heart and sing... prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it... who among us isn't still drawn away from God... to material gain, more than is good for us... pride of position, the approval of our peers... embracing bitterness against our enemies... on and on and on. We know what that's like. And if this is our experience, having God as our Father... it should be no reach to see that a mind... completely at enmity with God as the Apostle Paul says, would find all sorts of intellectual reasons to deny God's rule, reign, and yes, even existence. This is what we would expect from someone committed to life on his or her own moral terms. As all those atheists that I read to you admit in their own words. But here's the biblical diagnosis. ...and explanation of that same phenomena. It's in Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. Ephesians 4, 17. Is that in your notes? Let's read it out loud together, okay? And don't mumble it. Proclaim it. Now this I say and testify in the Lord... ...that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do... ...in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding... ...alienated from the life of God... ...because of the ignorance that is in them... ...due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous... ...and have given themselves up to sensuality... ...greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Notice, notice. It's not that their understanding is removed. It isn't removed. It's not that they've lost the capacity to reason. They're still intelligent... But that intelligence, as now, the text says, that intelligence, that brilliant IQ, all of that education, Paul says, it's been darkened. Isn't that an interesting word? Incredibly brilliant people, great intelligence, that's been darkened. It's, it's a dark kind. Of, they use their brilliance, bias against God. It's a brilliantly argued prejudice. Paul says in verse 18... ...they use their intelligence to fortify their alienation from God. 17 says they use their reasoning to futile ends... ...in the futility of their minds. Brilliantly arguing to nowhere. Point number two. While it is true... ...that beliefs shape actions. Undeniably that's true. It is more deeply true... ...that actions, especially repeated actions... ...affect beliefs. Look again at Huxley's telling words... ...where he says, for myself... ...as no doubt for most of my contemporaries... ...the philosophy of meaninglessness... ...was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. That'll be the last message in this series and I'm going to do it on a Sunday morning. Most ignorance is vincible ignorance. You can overcome it we don't know because we don't want to know. It is our will that decides how and upon what subjects we shall use our intelligence. Remember what we just read? Paul said their, their, their understanding, their brilliance, their intelligence is darkened. That's exactly what Huxley is saying. Now, with those words from all this Huxley in your mind... ...lay them on top of and just see how congruent they are with these words spoken long ago by the Lord Jesus Christ. And tell me if you see a similar, a similarity between what Jesus said and what Huxley says, what Adler says, what Nagel says. John 3, 19 to 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness... ...rather than the light... ...because their works were evil. Now think of Huxley. We developed a system... ...because it gave us... ...liberation and sexual freedom. They loved darkness... ...rather than light... ...because their works were evil. Isn't that just exactly it? For everyone who does wicked things... ...hates the light... ...does not come to the light... ...lest his works should be exposed. There's probably no God... ...so don't worry... So here we have our Lord's exegesis of the atheist's heart. So we shouldn't be surprised that honest atheists like Huxley, Adler, Nagel, and others, they're they're just inwardly forced to confess and admit the truth of Jesus Christ's words. Such is the power of Israel. So, the main point in Jesus' words is atheism is rooted in the will rather than the mind. It is all bound up with what people love and hate far more than just what they reason and think. I've just been uh, rereading some old books that I dug out of my dad's office after his funeral. I'm not recommending them to anyone. But I've been enjoying reading some of the brilliant old books by philosopher, theologian, Soren Kierkegaard. Don't run out and buy them. You'll read them and go, what in the world is Pastor Don thinking? So I'm not recommending them. But I love his words on the subject of atheism in a book called Works of Love. He says this. Listen to this. People try to persuade us ...that the objections against Christianity spring from doubt. This is a complete misunderstanding. He was a very educated man, Kierkegaard. The objections against Christianity spring from... ...insubordination. The dislike of obedience. Rebellion against all authority. As a result, people have hitherto been beating the air... ...in their struggle against objections because... They fought intellectually with doubt instead of fighting morally with rebellion. That's brilliant. Last point. If this is true, so some atheists, some prominent atheists, admit the situation. I've given you some quotes. There are many. Do, Do all atheists know this? Is this the common understanding that everyone who rejects God denies his existence? Do they all feel the weight of this in their heart? I'm going to say no. And I want to close by telling you why. I've never seen the movie. But I have frequently heard discussed and I've read up a little bit on a movie that maybe a lot of you have seen. It's been around a long time called The Sixth Sense... It's that movie where I can remember when it was in the theater and, and you know, you'd see it commercials on TV and it was that spooky little boy. I remember, and he kept saying, I see dead people. It has to do with a, a prominent child psychologist, Malcolm Crow, who tries to help this small boy, Cole Starr, who is somewhat tormented by ghosts and that I see dead people is the famous line in all the ads Malcolm the psychiatrist doesn't believe Cole at first but eventually the boy's words they kind of prove to be true okay spoiler alert the surprise ending ...is the story turns out to be as much about Malcolm, the psychologist, as the boy, Cole. And the reason is, it turns out that Malcolm himself, this psychologist, is a ghost. And doesn't know it. He's deceased already, and he doesn't know it. Already dead and unaware of it, which is quite a bummer... And the rest of the story kind of unfolds as Malcolm, the psychologist, he comes to term with the reality of his own deceased state. Just a dumb movie, to be sure. But it does prove just a perfect illustration of what we're studying tonight. Dead, but unaware of it. Dead, but unaware of it. And it's not an exaggeration to say this is the condition of every person born into this world. Original sin means we're all conceived in sin. And it's not just some insignificant truth. It's more than just religious lingo. And the worst aspect of this actual condition is it prevents people from knowing they are spiritually dead. So, in other words, spiritual deadness is is not a condition we can easily self-diagnose. Spiritual deadness affects cognition, self-awareness, self-perception, bias against God. It affects the way we reason, not diminishing our intelligence, but it creates a prejudice against God. And, at the very same time, sin always removes an awareness of its own presence, eventually. At first there's conscience, then there's numbness. Did you remember the Ephesians text? They have become callous, he says. Past feeling, the old King James. So this spiritual condition into which we are all born... It creates a prejudice against God and removes the awareness of blindness at the same time. We begin to attribute to the mind what is actually a problem of the will. I'm wrapping up with this verse that we're going to continue to study in future weeks. Romans 1.28 And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, They did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Notice that phrase, did not see fit to acknowledge God. Look how the old King James, once in a while I dig it out and how bluntly it puts those words. Listen, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Isn't that it? They did not like... ...to retain God in their knowing, in their thinking. They didn't keep him. It's not not that God isn't a worthy subject of knowledge... ...and it's not that he's not knowable. It's that he's not retained. He's not kept. He's eliminated. He was not allowed in these minds. And that, at least initially, was, was a choice... Those denying him chose to eliminate God. God didn't fit in with the way they wanted to shape their minds... ...and shape their lives. It's not that they didn't know God was there... ...it's that he didn't fit in. And they didn't want to adjust. So there are these moral roots of a biased, self-ruled worldview. And for Christians who know their Bibles... ...there should be not nothing... Shocking about the bold claims of modern atheism. There's not one person here who ought to be surprised by it. It's exactly what the Bible says. The atheist, without even meaning to, cannot help but fulfill God's word. There are two practical closing applications. you should not be surprised if just by your intellectual arguments and reasoning you cannot argue an atheist out of his denial of God given everything we've studied tonight it's not just an intellectual problem so what that means is just because you encounter someone who might be more educated read more books and everything you say, they can fire back every answer in the book and out-argue you at every point, does not in any way deny the truthfulness of your faith in Christ. It simply means there's not just an intellectual problem here. There's another problem here. And the Spirit of God has to work in that heart. That's application one, because you're going to encounter it. Application two is this. All sin, now I'm thinking of not people outside this room, I'm thinking about me, and I'm thinking about every one of you. All sin has an effect on the way you think about the sins you commit. In other words, when I sin before the Lord, it's not just that it brings guilt. But all sin affects your capacity to think clearly about sin. Which means this. ...any specific individual sin... ...repeated in carelessly... ...will soon leave you denying the reality of the guilt of that sin... ...to yourself. It spreads. It spreads. So the idea that I can... ...you know what, on the whole I'm living about an 80% good Christian life... ...and it's just in this one area... And, you know, I'm not that different from everybody else that I know in the church, in my group. And the longer you persist in one specific area of disobedience, the more you will come to justify it, and the more the rest of your Christian life will look like plausible grounds for compromise as well. Repent often, repent deeply, repent frequently. And sincerely, for even what appear to be the smallest of transgressions, because that's the only way they still look like transgressions to you. Let's pray.